Okay, well, good morning. Uh, I'm Steve, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. It's a, a quiet Sunday today. Is everybody on holiday, eating too much chocolate? Um, uh, so hopefully, um, those of you who have made it today, you know, you're the extra holy ones. Um, um, uh, one other notice is that um, at the end of April and May, uh, we're going to be doing um, a series of launch events in Kettering and Wellingborough. Uh, some of you will know over this next year, we plan to start two more sites of our church in those two places. And um, we would love for those launch events to have like a, a renter crowd. Um, and so we would love to rent some of you for the evening uh, to come and be on team, uh, serve refreshments, be a welcome team, those sorts of things. Um, we've already had a ton of people from both Wellingborough and Ketchum sign up to come and, come and just check us out at those events. And so we would love to just have a team on the ground who would be willing to come and serve for three weeks, respectively, in, in Ketchum and then in, in Wellingborough. So if, if you would like to do that, um, then uh, speak to me, or you can sign up uh, via church suite, whatever you want to do. Um, but we would love to have you uh, come and be part of the team. Um, so this morning, uh, we're picking back up in a series uh, that we started just before Easter, a series we called The Story of God, uh, which is part of a year-long campaign uh, that we're calling The Year of Biblical Literacy, where we're attempting, in an age where people no longer read, people are no longer literate, uh, to be a, a people who become biblically literate. And particularly this series that we're in, is we're, we're, we're kind of exploring the big story of the Bible, what we often call uh, the meta-narrative. And um, you might remember, right at the start of the year, uh, when we began this year of biblical literacy, uh, we, we said this about the Bible. We said, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. And so in this series that we're doing now, we're kind of trying to retell this unified story that as we, as we unpack this series, hopefully we'll be attempt to tell the unified story, that meta-narrative. Uh, and we're taking hold of this idea that the Bible uh, is one story told through many different authors, through different types of writings and plots and subplots, and, and hopefully we'll begin to see the, the, the big picture, the big story in process. Um, now, we often talk about the story of God or the story of the Bible being broken down into four sections, creation, fall, redemption, and the renewal of all things. Now, for the longest time, Christians have, have focused on just two, two elements of that story. They focused on fall and redemption. And whilst that's true, whilst that's an important part of the story, when we focus on those two parts of the story, we end up truncating or telling a half story. And the analogy that we've been using is it's a bit like going to watch a movie and turning up 20 minutes late. 
don't know if you've ever turned up late for a movie, but often you've missed the point where the characters have been developed and, and, and what's going on, what's the plot of the story, what's the direction that this is going in, if we turn up late. And equally, as well as turning up 20 minutes late, it's also like leaving 20 minutes before the film ends. Okay? And so, and so we fail to see the outcome of the story. So we can miss the beginning where the tone is set, but we can also fail to see the outcome. And as a result, um, God's story, the story of the scriptures, is often reduced to what we call a story of sin management, where, where we have people who pray a prayer of forgiveness, and then they get warehoused in churches until they die. I don't know if you've met any of those people. Maybe look to the person next to you and say, that's you. Um, um, but we, we, we tend to have a story when we truncate it that kind of just manages sin and, and, and we're okay because we've got our ticket punched, we get to go to heaven when we die. But actually, as we looked the first week of this series, um, this, it, it, it doesn't start, the story doesn't start with sin. The story doesn't start with, you're a sinner. I don't know if you've noticed that. But the story actually starts with God. It starts with a God who creates. And, and the, story, the story starts with creation. And, and you might remember, we looked, um, as we looked at the story of creation, God created all things, and he said it was Good. But like any good story, there's often, they often have moments of calamity uh, where, where crisis strikes. And as we saw last time I spoke, it, it doesn't take long for this to happen in God's story. In fact, it's by chapter 3 of the first book. Okay, It doesn't take long. Where, this, where the goodness of creation and the harmony of humanity, where, where people live in, in relationship with God and each other, it becomes broken. And, um, and we see the reality of sin enter into the story. Now, sin isn't just about rules being broken. It's about relationship being broken. And, 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 and because, of, because sin enters into the story, then creation, humankind uh, becomes separated relationally from God, but we also become separated from each other. And so the next chapter of this story begins. You know, the fall takes place where humankind and creation rebel against God. They sin against God. And brokenness and shame and pain and destruction enter the story. And so that's the point where we, we kind of pick up today. And I guess the question we might have is, is what's next? You know, if everything was complete, you know, uh, created in complete goodness... If, if creation was good and harmonious, if, if humanity was created to not only be in relationship with God but with each other, if humanity was given this responsibility for God's creation, if that's the first part of the story, and then if calamity has entered into the story and rebellion has entered into the story, then what could possibly happen next? 
at this juncture of the story, what's God going to do? And you see, it's at this point of the story, we have to really lean into the reality that God is still on the throne. That he's still in control, he's, and he's still interested in his creation. He's still got an investment there. And so it's at the, this point of the story that the redemption part begins uh, to kick in. It's kind of time for a reboot. It's, um, you know, Adam and Eve, they've messed things up, and God is looking to reboot the story. Now, what kind of reboot should God go for? You know, he could just think, oh, well, they've totally messed it up. Let's just start again. It might be like, you know, like a a Spider-Man or Batman film. You know, which is like, we didn't quite like the way the story was going, so let's make Ben Affleck Batman instead. And um, let's slightly improve the story and, and change it a little bit. So God could have done that. He could have just completely screwed it all up and started again. But he doesn't. Instead, God looks at all the options... Because I imagine, you know, with his holy iPad, he, he had lots of options in front of him. He looks at all the options, and his choice in redeeming this story is to go looking for a people. And in looking for a people, he chooses a person who will represent generations of people who will live out the redemptive story of God on the earth. And so the very people who mess up the story, God goes back to. And he says, okay, come on, let's together clean this mess up. Let's do this together. Let's rewrite the direction of this story. And that first person he chooses is a guy called Abraham. Now, we haven't got a lot of time this morning to look at the life of Abraham. We did do a series last year uh, called Multiply, where we looked at the life of Abraham and his interaction with God. So if you, you want to, you can go into the podcast and listen to that. But Abraham, um, when, when, when God first meets Abraham, he's basically a pagan moon worshipper. You know, he's like... Mystic Meg, he's kind of like an astrologer, you know, he's, he's into all of that kind of stuff. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a pagan in every sense of the word. And, and God basically says, you don't know me, but I know you, and I want you to trust me and go to the place I will show you. And so, and so Abraham begins to cooperate with God. And, and, he see, and, 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 and as he begins to cooperate God, things start to happen. Promises start to be fulfilled. There's these amazing promises that God speaks into his life. And then he, he begins to bless Abraham. And again, if we had lots of time, we could go and look at those. Um, but trust me, they're there. You should, if, you're, if you're doing the year of biblical literature, you've read all this, haven't you? Yeah, um, three of you. Um, and, and so, um, but God blesses Abraham. And it's, it's interesting to note that in, in Genesis 3, there are five curses 
that are given out. But then in, in Genesis 12, Abraham receives five blessings. Now, and I might be oversimplifying this, but I think, I think it's almost like God is saying, for every time brokenness entered the picture, I want you to know I've got your back. You know, for every time the people turned away from God, I'm going to restore the people back to me. That's, that's kind of what God is saying. For every curse given, there's a blessing to come. In the book, The Drama of Scripture, it says this about blessing. It says the dynamic word bless expresses God's purpose to give his creatures all they need uh, to fulfill their lives in his creation. And, it, and, he indeed, and he intends for them. The word curse, by contrast, expresses God's awful judgment on his, on his creatures when they rebel against his purpose for them. And that's what we see taking place. First in the life of Abraham, but then this transference to all of humanity. You see, as God begins to reverse the effects of the fall, he begins with Abraham, but he then extends it to all of his creation. And so we see this process takes place um, through a strange concept that the, the Bible refers to as covenant. Um, we don't really have anything in our culture that equals it that much. I guess the closest thing we have to covenant is marriage. So if you've got a Bible, uh, why don't you turn to Genesis 15, and we're going to look at um, a portion of Scripture together. And, and, and here we see a covenant taking place. We don't have a lot of time to pick it apart, um, but let's, let's read it together. Abraham um, had already received some promises from God, a promise of a child, even though Abraham's wife was unable to have children. Um, and, and it seems that every time Abraham has an audience with God, he has to remind God of that fact. You know, he's like, God, you promised this, and it still hasn't happened. You know, my biological clock's ticking away, and it still hasn't happened. And so we're going to pick up in in verse 5, where he's he's reminded God again that you haven't fulfilled your promise, God. And so it says this about God. It says, he took him outside and said, look up in the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And so God reinforces the promise that he's already made. And it it says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then God said this to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldean uh, to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that will gain possession of it. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all them to him and cut them in, in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And then there's this interesting bit in 
in verse 12, God begins to kind of prophesy and speak over Abraham. It says this, as the sun was setting, setting, he fell, fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain uh, that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation um, that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go um, to your ancestors, uh, ancestors, ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoke uh, fire pot with a, a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. A covenant is, is basically agreement that cannot be broken. And as we see in Genesis 15, it's really happen, it happens in a kind of bloody and slightly gory kind of way. Okay? If you're a 10-year-old boy, you love this part of the Bible. You know, it's just gruesome and gory. But basically what happens is... Um, in this kind of covenant, they would take some animals, in this case a goat and a cow and some doves and pigeons, and um, they would cut the animals in half. They cut them into two halves, and then they would place them each side of each other. And they would kind of create this kind of bloody pathway between the two. Okay? Um, are you picturing that in your mind? Um, and, um, and basically what would happen, this pathway would be wide enough for two people to walk shoulder to shoulder, and they would walk through uh, this pathway. And, and, and as they do this, they would basically say, if one of us breaks this agreement, we deserve to end up like the goats and the cows. Okay? If you want a reference for that, then Jeremiah 34. Okay? And, um, and so this, this idea of covenant is slightly strange in our, in our world. We don't quite understand uh, why we do that? It's the kind of. It sounds like the kind of things that presidents do at Bohemian Grove. You know, it's just a bit weird. You know, just a bit strange. And, um, but it's kind of like a big deal. You know, it's it's kind of a, a big deal. And so, so this is what's happening in Genesis 15. And, and, and so, this promise God makes that the descendants will inherit the land. Um, that his descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. And this covenant, this covenant is, is, is key to the redemptive outcome of the story. And, and as we see, God does, does something fairly unique. You see, Abraham, he sets the, he sets the animals up for the covenant, uh, but God makes Abraham fall asleep. And God takes both sides of the deal. He's like, I've got this one. You know, I'll I'll take this covenant. And you see, that's, that's that's a strange concept because most covenants happen between two people. 
But God chooses to take this covenant on his own. And you see, this is so important because I think God saw this as a deal breaker. And I think God saw it as so much of a deal breaker, he said, I'm not going to let anything stop this from happening. You see, this, is, this covenant that God is making with Abraham at this time is key to the redemptive nature of this story. And so it's so important that God takes both sides of the deal, that he's the one who, who makes the commitment. And you see, God is so committed to removing the brokenness that he takes the whole deal on himself. And maybe we've never recognized that before. Maybe we've never seen that before. I know this week as I've been mulling this over, I was like, yeah, God, God was willing to take the whole deal. He didn't need our interaction. Now, this isn't the only time that God makes a solitary covenant or promise. Um, we see this with Noah, you know, where God promises not to destroy creation again. Uh, and the symbol of that is a rainbow, as we know. And then we have this moment in Genesis 15 and 17, where God makes these promises to Abraham, uh, and he makes this covenant with Abraham, and he says, you're, you're going to be blessed to be a blessing, and you're gonna, your descendants are going to inherit the land. And the symbol of that is circumcision. So n- not all symbols are equal, okay? Rainbow, circumcision, I know what one I take. Um, and then... Um, And then um, we get to Moses. He promises Moses that the people will be special, uh, that they're commanded to obey the law that God gives them. And as a result, a symbol of that is the Sabbath. And then if we fast forward a little to the new covenant, uh, and I don't want to tread on the toes of me giving this talk next week, but uh, uh, Jesus shows up in in this moment. And clearly the Israelites can't handle the covenant that they have. And so the prophets begin to tell of a better way that's coming. And then Ezekiel talks about God taking a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. And Jesus inaugurates this through his death and life and and resurrection. And the sign of that covenant is, is baptism. And so we see these these ideas of covenant all through the scriptures. And, and what God is doing in, with Abraham in this moment, uh, that he, he, he would bless Abraham, uh, he would give him his blessing, but he also wants to bless the whole of humanity through him. And so one idea of, of covenant is, is like this. It's as if God is saying, I will be to you as I should be whether you are or are not as you should be to me. I'll say that again. I will be to you as you should be, as I should be, whether you are or are not as you should be to me. And you see, that's what God is doing with Abraham. On this day when he makes Abraham fall asleep and he he walks the path alone, the bloody path, he's saying, I will be all that I am meant to be, regardless of what you do, regardless of how well you perform, regardless of how faithful you might remain, I'm in this. I'm committed to this, so much so I'm taking this covenant on my own. It's almost as if God's saying, I will be to you even though I know you're going to mess up. 
Yeah? I will be to you everything I'm meant to be, even though I know at some stage you're going to mess it up again. You see, that's how committed God is to rewriting the trajectory of this story. And see, what we see happening, and it's what we see happening through the whole of the Old Testament, God's ongoing commitment to redeeming and restoring what was broken in the garden. And he chooses to restore what was broken in the garden through humanity, through his creation. See, that's the grand narrative. That's, that's the big story of God. That's what God is up to. As one author says, he says, we were not just created and then given a covenant. We were created as covenant creatures, partners to the drama that was about to unfold in history. And you see, that's why God never gives up. He never gave up on the Israelites time and time again. They rejected what God had for them, but he never gave up on them. He never gave up on us. Time and time again, we reject him. Time and time again, we, we, we mess up, and he doesn't give up. And how many of us know that we have a much bigger role in the story than just being saved. That it's not just about being saved from something, but we're saved because God is redeeming the rest of the world through his people. As Christine Kane said, God uses rescued people to rescue people. You see, it's a covenant of, of purpose, with the express purpose to reverse the effects of the brokenness of the fall. That's the story of Scripture. That's the story that you and I are caught up in, that we're part of. And it's a wonderful story. You see, this is where the redemptive part of God's plan begins. And if, if you can take nothing else from this today, know that the story is bigger than the, what we've ever been sold. You see, you see the problem when we're only solved fall and redemption is we miss the beauty of what God's really doing. That he's restoring creation to himself. That all that was created, all that was good, he's restoring to himself. And so redemption begins. Some of you may remember in 1989, there was a, a tragic earthquake in Armenia. And um, it was about 8.2 on the Richter scale. And within four minutes, uh, it's estimated that 30,000 people lost their lives. That morning, a, a father had dropped his son off at school his son was called Amar, and he, he dropped his son off at school. And, and like he said to his son every single day, he says, I will not forget you, I'll be back for you, and I'm always here for you. And then he walks away, and the earthquake hits. And the first thing the father thought was, was about his promise that he made his son. 
So the father, he rushes back to the school and all he sees is is a pile of, of, of rubble and people standing around grieving and mourning. And in that moment, he's kind of taken back. He can, he can hardly breathe, and grief begins to, to set in. But then he remembers the promise. And so he decides to go and find his son's classroom. And he goes to the part of the school where the classroom is, and, and again, there's just a, a pile of rubble. And he begins to dig with his bare hands, and he, he's taking chunks of plaster and, and concrete uh, and... Um, and people come by, and they're like, what are you doing? They're, they're dead. It's, it's it. That's it. It's over. And he says, I've promised my son I won't give up. I've promised my son I'll be here. And so he continues for two hours, and two hours become four hours, and then eight hours, and then ten hours, and then ten hours become 20 hours, and then 28 hours in, He's ready to give up. But he thinks, what if my son is alive? I've made him a promise. And so he continues to dig for 36 straight hours, tearing out plaster and concrete and throwing it aside, knowing that he's made his son a promise. And because he hopes his son is still alive. Just after the 36th hour, he cries out, I'm on. And he hears a muffled voice beneath the rubble saying, Papa, Papa. And he digs and he digs and he, and he finds his son. And as a result, he also finds 33 other children. And as they begin to take the children out, he, he hears his son turn to a friend and say, see, I told you my father would come for us. If there was one thing that we'd want to hear this morning through this story of covenant, through this story of Abraham, is that's the father's words. I'll not forget you. I'll be back for you. I'll always be there for you. And you know, no matter how dark, how desperate, how broken, how painful things become, the Father's always there. He always comes back for those who need rescuing. Next week, we're um, we're going to look at Jesus. And how Jesus is, is, is God in human flesh. That God comes and he puts on, he embodies human flesh and he embodies the redemptive story in himself. And without going too much into next week's message, to, to see the kind of rescue that God has for us, the kind of redemptive reality that God has for us is fulfilled in Jesus. Remember what we said at the start, that the Bible is a unified story that leads us to who? It leads us to Jesus. See, Jesus is the embodiment of redemption. And so the rescue of God, we all, and to be, you know, to be rescued by God, to, to be rescued by him, we all, or simply have to give our lives 
to Jesus, to, to surrender ourselves to him. You know, N.T. Wright says that um, Jesus is the climax of the covenant. He's the climax of this covenant that was made thousands of years before. He brings fulfillment to what God's promised. And we can have access to him. And so this is where we are in the story. We're, we've seen creation, we've seen fall and destruction enter in. And now the work of redemption is happening. And we're going to park here for a few weeks and look at this story of redemption before we move to the last chapter, which is all about God making all things new. 